0: You are listening to Drifter. I'm Pengfei Zhang. In this episode, I had a conversation with Aaron Wagner on self-shaping timber structure, AI and drones. Aaron studied not only architecture, but also chemistry and mechanical engineering before joining our cohort at iTech. Now he's working on his thesis that explores the potential of self-shaping wood as functional and sustainable building material. What did you do today?
1: I think my day is going pretty great. So um, Eddie's still here for my thesis group, and we just picked up a lot of wood yesterday from Mm -hmm. Wangen, so the place where we made the pavilion. Um, And we just delivered it yesterday, and now we stacked it all up and prepared it for the moisture chamber that's coming up for our big demonstrator, I guess.
0: Nice. Really cool. Yes. Yeah, I know a lot of us have changed our rest- uh, thesis titles, topics, and what's your current uh, title of your thesis?
1: Well, our title is HygroDesign functionally graded Self-Shaping Wood Components um, for architecture, I think, or architectural self-shaping wood components. So um, we employ the same principle that we did uh, in the pavilion as well, so the self-shaping with the hygroscopic motion, And I guess what we contribute now to the research is that we use different species. So we have a functionally graded um, component. So where we want the component to be lightweight, we use spruce. Where where it can be heavy or more stiff, we use beech. And then we also change the curvature throughout the piece and not just keep like a a half cylinder or like a continuous cylinder.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're one of the material experts in our studio. Last year. So could you explain <laughs> like, uh, what is a hygroscopic property of wood? It's a very fascinating uh, yeah. property for me, I think.
1: Yeah, first of all, thanks for the compliment, of course, because I wouldn't consider myself to be a material scientist. But I guess, yeah, so the, I guess the hygroscopic properties of wood is effectively the dimensional change, so the change in length. Um, depending on the moisture content that the piece of wood has. I guess a nice stand-in for that is how a bimetal strip works, right? From like metals, we know that when the temperature rises, they also expand. And um, so in the self-shaping, we can use the dimensional change of the wood, um, similar to how you would glue two or like weld two metals together. And then if one expands more than the other, then it effectively curves the metal strip and in the wood it's all the same we have a passive layer that is fully dry and then we laminate an active layer on top that is wet and when the active layer dries the piece effectively shrinks and then it curves the piece I think I also have a sample but mm-hmm. I guess yeah but different there won't be any video <laughs>
0: uh yeah but... The difference between wood and metal is wood is heavily influenced by the water moisture content. That's why it's called hygroscopic, yeah. I guess. So what is active layer and what is passive layer?
1: Hmm. How do to, you how to explain that in like a very visual way just to grasp from the audio? Mm-hmm. I guess um, there's two layers as in the bimetal and the passive layer is like a thinner, Uh, could be plywood or like full timber that is fully dry, meaning like it's at around 12% moisture content, like nine to 12%. And the active layer, as the name suggests, like the layer that effectively has the strength or the actuation happens in the active layer. That's why it's called active Mm -hmm. and the passive layer just is there to restrict the dimensional change and the bonding surface between the active and the passive layer. So if you imagine like a rectangle, which would be like one board of the passive layer, like we look on the cross section of one uh, board of timber, and then we glue this board on the bottom to a different layer, then in this like bonding interface, no length change can happen effectively. So then if the top one, if the top side of this board then shrinks, it's kind of like a trapezoid, right? Mm -hmm. And this like array of trapezoids then effectively is like generates a curvature.
0: So basically the passive layer stay is pretty stable in terms of the geometry. And then the,
1: the active layer uh,
0: can change the geometry, either either expand or shrink when the moisture content changes. So when there's exactly. a difference between those two layers, the overall geometry may start to change. Like the active layer will pull the overall geometry into a curved shape. I'm just describing what I learned from last year.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think your summary was way better. <laughs> you should be the material expert. No, I mean um, I, yeah.
0: I, I only know the surface, uh, the superficial <laughs> part of it. I think your like your group is more going like, deep into the scientific uh, research into this topic, which is really cool. So, uh, what's the biggest difference from your your current uh, thesis research compared to our studio project?
1: Mm-hmm. I would say there's three different, um, three differences. So, like, first of all, that I guess I kind of mentioned in the beginning was in the studio, we used uh, spruce as the active layer, and all the components just used spruce um, all around. But, like, we see that this practice is not sustainable because now mm, 96% of all construction wood is just softwoods, and spruce is a softwood, of course. Mm-hmm. But in the forest itself, it's it's very diverse, right? We have, of course, we also have a lot of spruce monoculture, which we want to transition away from now. So the forest is getting more diverse, especially here in Germany. We have like 40% softwoods, 60% hardwoods in the forest. And this is going to like change even more. So what we are doing in the thesis is we also try to use beech and spruce, so a hardwood and a softwood. And in terms of properties, I guess they're like, similar but also different so the expansion coefficient which effectively describes how big this length change or dimensional change um, with the hygroscopic motion is is different in beach than in spruce so in beach it's higher for example so with this difference in material properties we can create um, a variable curvature along the length so Let's say at the tip of a cantilever, you would need very little curvature because you don't need a lot of stiffness, but you want the piece to be super light so that we can use spruce. And then mm-hmm. if we get more towards the support, we want the really high stiffness of the beach, but then also the drawback of having the high weight, but not so important at the support because we don't have a big leather arm. Um, But then we also can use the high hygroscopic motion, the big expansion coefficient to gain like a very tight radius, like a high amount of curvature, which then adds a lot of stiffness in the structure. So I guess this is kind of the that we change the parameters along the component is our big thing. So the material, but also the moisture content, um, the, the stiffness, the curvature, yeah we tailor it towards the needs of the structure in different areas oh
0: that sounds really cool like firstly you're considering the ecological impact because in germany we have more uh, hardwood supply than yeah. softwood what's the reason there are more hardwood than softwood
1: i think it's it still depends also like where in germany it is but it's just like the natural ecological system like if it's it's if it's very rocky if it's very sunny or if it's, if it's dry and damp, and depending on that, you will have more, let's say, beech or spruce or more hardwoods and more softwoods. Um, yeah, and I think the climate is ideal kind of for both um, types of tree. Like I, I would say in Canada or in Scandinavia, there's definitely more, um, more softwoods just because of the
0: climate. <clears throat> it's always nice to use local, material so we can save a lot of uh, energy or carbon emission just on transportation of the material yeah that makes a lot of sense is there like a big difference between the structural performance between hardwood and softwood i mean just based on the name sounds like one is softer or
1: (laughs) i think for sure there's tendencies like we have to think of it as a distribution so you will probably find a hardwood that is like lighter and less stiff than another softwood. But I think the name already gives you a good indication. So hardwoods are generally more dense and more density is effectively more, like more meat in the cell walls. So more cellulose, more hemicellulose, more lignin, and thus effectively more density also means a higher stiffness. So like a super heavy wood like oak or beech as well, like up to 800 to 700 kilograms per cubic meter is going to have like a stiffness of, I don't know, 17,000 megapascals and the softwood like Spruce, I think is a good middle or like large will be much lighter, like probably half of it or two thirds of that, like 400 kilograms per cubic meter. But the stiffness is also going to be less like around maybe 11,000 megapascals. So I think, yeah, the name already implies kind of what you're getting structurally with mm-hmm.
0: that. So the higher density of cellulose or lignin, does it also contribute to bigger change in the shape when the moisture content changes?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think this is nice. Um, throughout the last year, we had a class mm-hmm. called Wood Physics and Engineered Wood yeah. Products uh, with Philip Greenquist from formerly from ETH. And he really went uh, like very much into detail um like of course, I guess what most people know is that the cellulose is kind of like the the fibril, the fibrous structure in the wood that takes is responsible for all the tension mm-hmm. forces. And then the lignin is more for the compressive strength, mm-hmm. um, and the hemicellulose kind of ties everything um, together. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely also an impact with the hygroscopic motion. So effectively, what generates the volume change in the wood is the water getting in between the cellulose fibers and then kind of with H bonds bonding to the cellulose fibers, and then effectively expanding the space between the fibers, and this generates this volume change. And then above, let's say the saturation of all these H bonds, all the water is not bond with h bonds but it's just free between the cavities and the cell walls so where there's normally air mm-hmm. that makes the wood then lighter and yeah i could probably go on for hours and <laughs> philip could even go on for days and i guess he wrote an entire phd about wood water interaction and like different buildups of cell walls and wood is just such a intricate natural complex, amazing material. And I think that's also the beauty. Exactly. You can
0: go really deep into this topic and it's really fascinating. And also not, we haven't really further explored this property as deep as other like a concrete or reinforced concrete. And also, as you mentioned that the cellulose is taking the tension, the lignin is taking the compression. It's very similar. Principle like reinforced concrete, like the rebar is taking the tension and the, yeah. the concrete taking the compression. So wood is just naturally a very good material for structural purposes.
1: Yeah, de- definitely.
0: Yeah, and then with the computational tools, it gave us the opportunity to actually design or customize the curvature. That's also one of the topic you're exploring now. And how how yeah. do you control or customize the curvature
1: i think that's a very good point that i haven't touched on yet is um, how do we predict then the curvature radius because that's effectively your design parameter that makes the morphology space like what types of radii? so like how big are the cylinders or parts of the cylinder that you can get and can you forecast like what moisture change is going to lead to what design like what geometry and for that there's two interesting methods that we use one is like from the 1900s effectively the Timoshenko uh, bimetal um, Mm -hmm. equation that I mentioned before when Mm -hmm. a bimetal raises its temperature it gains a certain curvature and this formula then I think it was even from Philip Grunquist was adapted so the um the temperature change was substituted with the moisture change um, of the wood. So we effectively in this formula, it looks very complex, but it's actually pretty straightforward. But the most important parameters are the the wood moisture change, the moduli of the different of the active and the passive layer, so species specific, and the expansion coefficient that's also species specific. And I think those are the most important ones. And between the expansion coefficient and the a moisture change, those are linear parameters as well as some other geometric parameters. Um, and then the second, so this is the analytical model, right? We just plug in those variables into the formula and we get one number that tells us, okay, for this specific change of moisture, let's say from 20% wood moisture content to 12, for beach, for this uh, grain angle, which influences the expansion coefficient, we get the radius, let's say 600 millimeters. And then there's the other method, effectively the FEM method. So for that, we use SOPHISTIC, and I guess Philip Gruenqvist also used, I think ANSYS. So like effectively, how can we digitally model and then predict it with modern um, technology, modern structural um, simulations. Um, And there it's, effectively the same we just specify the material we specify the geometry and we give it um, the expansion coefficient and the moisture change and of course in those softwares there is no like hygroscopic motion so we substitute the hygroscopic motion with a temperature strain and the temperature strain is just build up of this expansion coefficient and uh, the moisture change so the software Mm -hmm. thinks I guess we have a really large temperature change, Mm. but for us, it's just a hygroscopic motion. And that one works pretty well. So I guess the big difference, or the big step that we needed to make is the Timoshenko equation is really nice if you have one radius, right? You want to make a half cylinder or a cylinder with 600 millimeters and you know, okay, I'll use this setup. But now when you have a change in curvature, in the L direction, so in the length of the component, then you can just use one formula. You would need to do that for like every millimeter. So there, mm. like digital software is, is super helpful and uh, finite element
0: mm. modeling. Well, it sounds like thermal stress has always been considered in the in the design of those analytical softwares. But this uh, hygroscopic property—it's just a very basic property of wood. But it's not which means people really need to spend more effort on research or like just think about how to use wood as a potential or structural material. I mean wood as a natural material also has a lot of uh, environmental benefits, right I mean I, I was uh, working in the environmental impact group last year, so I uh, we did some some like a life cycle assessment that uh, shows wood as a material really has a lot of benefit just to offset the carbon emission and the global warming potential and compared to other common classic building materials like concrete or steel or glass. I mean, yeah, I think it's, it's a really promising direction for research with a lot of potentials. Um, were you interested in wood or timber? before you came to iTech?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say not as much as I'm now. Like, I think now I'm very certain that I will work more in, in timber engineering and with wood um, mm-hmm. after iTech, after graduating mm-hmm. um, in, in research or in industry. But I think coming into iTech, what I was or I guess the vision or the, the perspective I had was more about this like almost like super like technological thing that ITEC is and the carbon fiber and the robots and high performance and I think especially also ecological aspects were not as present in my mind as they are now. And I think I was I was super excited when we when the topic was revealed for the studio that we're doing self-shaping. And I think they also presented nice precedents with the furniture they had done and the tower. Um, and I think they made us really excited about, Mm -hmm. um, Timber in general. Um, but I guess before in all the studios I did, I had a friend in undergrad and she's like the Timber queen. (laughs) She was always like pushing Timber and super engaged. And I guess I was more of the like, oh, let's just do like a super thin filigree steel truss. That's like high performative. Um, and I guess that, that changed a lot now through. I take yeah. Because mm-hmm. now we're like <laughs> full on timber <laughs> every day. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. I can imagine. Like in traditional architecture, education, timber or wood is always considered as a traditional material and always we see it as a static kind of material. But I really give us a new perspective. Um, uh, like we see it as kind of actuator instead of uh, just static uh, mass. Once we started to see it as an actuator we start to think in a computational way or uh, in in a method of programming and then i think that's the most fascinating part of this self-shaping with wood yeah it's nice that you you uh, discovered the new world after you came to ITEC. did you also work on any heavy positions on in in this topic
1: uh yeah for sure um of course uh, as the studio as well is part of the research agenda might be like a negative connotation but like the research topic that is very present in ICD mm-hmm. um, and in the industry as well and of course with the industry to partners blue malayman everyone's super excited about as you said this material programming approach of like taking something that's normally considered like a big drawback about the material like especially beach normally in the industry you use steam beach to relieve a lot of the Hygroscopic stresses and to make it less hygroscopically active and more um dimensionally stable and i think every carpenter uh, like knows the feeling of uh planing a board and like putting it through the saw and then you try to assemble it and is in german we say that the wood is working like with mm. the relative humidity and the, the wood is constantly changing its form um like not super much but enough to then a joint might not line up perfectly again and i think this is like such a always considered as such a big drawback and now this is like this super big potential of programming the material and the form like emerging from the material so yeah i think this is super fascinating and what what is also like different than from steel like steel is like so strong and accurate and stable but it's like it's cold and it doesn't it's not alive and wood just feels feels alive like they, you can have this form change like without any external force mm-hmm. and you just see it moving like in the small scale mm-hmm. in the 4d printing that we have uh in the university as well i guess in the in the fit energy mm-hmm. gate that was just published a few weeks ago where you have these 4d printed super thin elements that are so reactive that you can like see the, the movement even in real time is, is absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. So yeah I kinda <laughs> I kinda derailed the question about the hibies. But yes, effectively there's there's two heavies, um, two researches I did, more on the self-shaping mm-hmm. together with Bluma Lehmann on on even bigger large scale projects and how to integrate this uh, process now into the industry and what we what we found very interesting was that the infrastructure they have in the sawmill is is kind of not made for what we're trying to do so for example they have a ct scanner and a a moisture meter that's like every board runs through Mm -hmm. but of course all these instruments are calibrated to a certain range that is now used in the construction industry right so it's most accurate around let's say nine to 14% because that's what the moisture content of the wood that we use in the construction industry is Mm. and then as soon as it's like around 20% maybe 28% it's it's Mm. very inaccurate because they don't really care about how much it is but just that it's wet wood and that they have to dry it Mm. so I think this was really fascinating also how how optimized sawmills are and Mm. how tailored everything is to the established way that we construct and that this is a i guess a potential to to change the industry
0: mm-hmm. so for self-shaping wood uh do we prefer to use the wet wood or dry standard industrialized uh wood
1: i guess in a way we need both right we need the passive layer that is our dry resistive force against the dimensional change and then we also need uh, the wet wood which then again is, it becomes a potential, right? Normally, as a sawmill, you want your wood dry and that you can mm-hmm. sell it and like super fast, like they even use ovens to dry the wood to, mm. to get more throughput through the sawmill. And now we can say, okay, this wet wood, we don't actually need to dry it in an oven because we can use it in, in its wet state and it, mm. its green state or like very lightly air dried over the winter in the forest. Mm-hmm. And then we can save so much energy from not having to dry it in a kiln.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. So through this self-shaping technique, we can avoid potentially avoid the extra energy spent on drying the wood, and then we can just use the the, the wood in the more natural state yeah. properties. I think that's a really smart way to to use the material. Uh, at what moment in your life you made this decision to study architecture?
1: oh <laughs> that's a very good question so i think when i interviewed let me start the, the story like this when i interviewed for um study places in architecture for undergrad like you, I, in germany here we it's probably the same everywhere you have this process of like you send in the portfolio maybe you you do another interview and they they ask you the same question right like when when did you find out or oh, why do you want to study architecture? Hmm. And I always had this like cheeky answer of like, I, oh, back in high school, like right from the beginning, right in the fifth class, I already knew I always wanted to study chemistry, so, <laughs> it's like <laughs> this twist. Yeah, like when we first visited the high school, we had this like chemins- chemistry demonstration from mm-hmm. like high school students and you have like all these liquids that were poured together and you have this amazing color change. Mm -hmm. and i knew okay i wanted to study chemistry and when it finally we had chemistry the first time in the eighth grade i was like ah this is my life this is my dream (laughs) yeah and then after after my a level i i studied chemistry at TU munich and the first year i realized the lab is amazing and like working and this color change and the science behind it but i'm not a big math guy and i'm also not a big physics guy and this is as big as a a part of chemistry as working in the lab and like periodic table and chemistry itself. Mm -hmm. So then it was like, okay, let me kind of rethink my life again. But so I guess the takeaway was, I kind of like working in the lab and I like when things like a bigger scale, like designing. So then the next thing I did was apply for, for architecture and for mechanical engineering. So in the end, I had the opportunity to take both, but I I sided with mechanical engineering. So again, not architecture, but I think this was already the right step. And there was still a lot of physics and math, which I think retrospectively I would have been able to make work, but Mm -hmm. I was definitely now more interested in, I guess, reflecting on the chemistry. What I liked was the like drafting, trying things out, working manually in the lab, working like with things maybe not necessarily on like a super small scale like molecular scale but like with with I don't know like a, a real scale component like a mm-hmm. that you can take into your hand and I guess this is what I liked in mechanical engineering but it was not big enough of course right like a building is like as Le Corbusier says like the the machine for living mm-hmm. like a machine that you can go into mm-hmm. and I, I found this very fascinating then when I got more into touch with like people in the creative industry. And then I said, OK, no, I'll, I'll do a, a year of mechanical engineering and I'll, I'll just apply again. And then this time I'm going to take the spot in architecture. So that's how I got to Stuttgart. And I haven't regretted <laughs> I guess there were days where I reconsidered and I was thinking, oh, this is, this is hard but in the end i think it was totally worth it and that's why how i also discovered I i guess in the end and then it all comes back to chemistry and mechanical mm-hmm. engineering and like the the scientific research approach again Wow,
0: well, it's really cool that like after this long exploration <laughs> of what you wanted to do the, in what, what your real interest is and eventually you end up in the position that can, connect all the dots yeah. together. And chemistry is, is like a, a magic, like the, yeah. I always think it's like a magician's uh, work. Like you just uh, do something, do some tricks and then things uh, explode or, or just change colors. And But I think, as you said, it might be very abstract at the beginning or very theoretical because you cannot really physically see the molecule with your yeah. eyeball. And then you have to like imagine or think in a very abstract way and mechanical engineering or buildings more tangible something we can really touch sure. and we can play with in, in our hands that's quite different and architecture also have this uh, aspect of an kind of artistic side or more creative side in addition in addition to uh science and engineering I guess that's yeah. also why I think for me i, I kind of knew that I wanted to study architecture when I was in high school because I I was really into art and I like to draw. And I just, uh, whenever I have like a free time, I just doodle on the paper, piece of paper, and I like to draw a lot when I was a kid. But I, I was also really into like physics or science when I was a kid. I was this kind of like a typical nerdy kid. (laughs) (laughs) Spent a lot of time by myself just to either like look at books about uh spaceships or just to draw something. Um eventually I heard from somewhere that architects is like can do both, like uh, both engineering and and art. And oh that's perfect for me. And but the reality is architecture is probably not as scientific as real scientists, and also as artistic as real artists. But it's nice to have a little bit of, uh, of both. I think that's also why I eventually ended up in itech. I think itech also had this balance between uh, engineering thinking and design thinking.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, I love how you how you phrase that. Um, I guess I never really asked you how you actually found out about iTech because I knew you you were working in the industry already and then like how did you find out about iTech this is always the big question right I I
0: don't I don't know who's going to listen to this podcast eventually Um, but one of the reasons I wanted to make this podcast is also because when I was trying to apply for iTech I didn't find much information about it Mm. I only saw the Cool futuristic pictures on the official website, but not much like personal uh, opinion on it from from the community. So that's yeah. why I thought maybe there will be some other students or people who are interested in this kind of research. They want to know more about what we're doing here, and maybe it's nice to share some of the details of our our study here. Um, yeah, so. And how I discover iTech. That it was interesting. I think um, like I never heard about the University of Stuttgart before 2020. <laughs> <laughs> I don't
1: blame you.
0: <laughs> uh, but in 2020, there was a huge event that affected the world, that's the corona pandemic and suddenly I had to stay home and there was like a shelter in place order in New York City and basically everyone is supposed to stay home and then uh, I suddenly had a lot of free time in my life. During the day, I just do my daily job and then in the evening, I just uh, staying in my apartment was just browsing. Online, one of my coworkers recommended me an online conference called digital future and ah. I watched some uh, lectures on that conference uh, and one of the talks is actually from the University of Stuttgart the topic was self- shaping wood I think um, in, in that year <laughs> and I found oh this is really cool and I, I just I googled uh, the ICD itke and I and just looking at what they're doing and thought, oh, this is really interesting. They're using robots to build buildings. And then because at that time, I also had to go to the construction site pretty often and uh, just to see how construction workers on the site still have to manually complete a lot of those tasks, which can be very harmful for their health. Because sometimes I had to just uh, be on the construction site for maybe just uh, one morning. But after four hours standing there, mm. my back and my knees just hurt. And then I can't imagine how those workers spend like months and years just on the construction side. And and I thought this must be the future to use more autonomous system in those like unpleasant working environments. And yeah, also uh, the computational method is something I've always been very interested in. Because in my previous education, I was like I used to be a teaching assistant for a computational class in Chicago, uh, in architecture school context, and but in actually in in the industry, it's still not very widely used yet. But I thought for sure it will be the future, the trend of the industry. I think another trigger for me was in 2016 when Google developed this AlphaGo the AI uh, system that when the game against a human champion on the goal game because my dad was a big go game fan. Like he he used to spend just the nights and nights playing with his friend, just playing on the, that game. And now it's a very complicated game and I was always a bit intimidated by just watching my dad playing it and I thought it's very intellectually challenging game. I would never imagine that the computer could master this skill and win the human champion. I think 2016 was a, a year that when I started to started to think about how the technology will influence the, the world or influence every aspect of the industry. So just a lot of like events a series of events together that kind of uh, encouraged me to, to explore something new, because I feel <laughs> like after working in, the, in an architecture office, although those projects are quite interesting for me, just witnessing development in in AI and robotics uh, going so fast, and then we're still doing the, the old tricks. I wanted to spend more of my energy on like, pushing the boundary of the industry before the pandemic, I was always busy and I feel like just running on the treadmill. Uh, never had time to stop and think. But during the pandemic I had more time to just think about what I really wanted to do in a more retrospective way. And I think for me, this pandemic's more like like an earthquake that shook me all of the my local optimum. Like we're on this the fitness model of opt- optimization. Uh, sometimes before we're reaching the the global optimum, we got stuck in the local optimum. I feel like I felt like before the pandemic, I was stuck in the one local optimum. I Never thought about getting out of that comfort zone. But the the pandemic really kind of gave me a shake of the overall landscape, and then helped me to jump out of all of the local optimum, looking for the next one. Maybe the next one will still be a local optimum, but at least I, I tried. I think I won't regret later in my life.
1: Yeah, I think that just takes a lot of courage to... I feel like it like It like needs something like the pandemic, like this wake up call to like shake you and be like, okay, is this all you want from life? What do you really want in life? And like to rethink and to refocus. And yeah, I think that's like a very respectable um to then go back to academia to not have like a a high regular income and to just challenge yourself again and to not be super comfortable and be like okay i'm on the treadmill but i mean it's it's okay (laughs) so yeah what i'm i guess what i'm also interested in is there's a lot of established programs in the u.s i guess the biggest one is like the harvard gsd right there's also well, i guess there's uh ones in in great britain there's IEC in 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 spain um what what and then you say like there's there's stuttgart which you've never heard before <laughs> so <laughs> what was the point for you to say okay i just or why did you pick itech over i don't know gsd or the bartlett or or IEC? Hmm.
0: yeah actually i i also applied for gsd and then I was admitted to the uh, design engineering program, which is also similar to iTech that combines design thinking and engineering thinking. Uh, somehow I was just looking at the research project. Somehow I felt like the the works from iTech, from ICD and ITKE, uh, look more rigorous or in a more rigorous way. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> That's something I always respect because since my early education in architecture, I was always a fan of uh, Bauhaus. Mm. And my education in Chicago was also like heavily influenced by Bauhaus, like the Institute of Technology in Illinois was once called New Bauhaus because Ms. van der Rohe moved from Germany to mm. Chicago and brought the whole idea of modern architecture structural engineering material detail paying attention to detail to that school for a long time somehow i felt like that's my part of my architectural education dna or something i'm just naturally attracted to the method of uh or icd yeah of course like the program in gst is also really i think pioneering and it's, it's a very new program only has a few years of uh, history, and also prove that this is this will be the trend in the future. This kind of multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary approach to design and uh, engineering. But I think it's more 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 like a personal preference for me to pick this uh, German education, and also I think living in the Europe it's always always on my bucket list. After those years. Studying architecture history, it's like a, a pilgrimage to go to Europe to see all those holy sites in architecture, either either the Gothic cathedrals or the modern monuments. And Germany is in a very good location; it's right in the middle of Europe. It's easy to travel yep. to other countries in Europe. Yeah, so I, I don't regret moving to Germany. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: don't know if everyone's gonna say that, but. I, I i'm glad that you you made the bold choice and you you came here and i don't know you seem to like it a lot here Mm. so i think that's that's pretty nice because i think most germans wouldn't say that stuttgart is like one of the top 10 beautiful or most beautiful cities more like the bottom 10 (laughs) (laughs) so yeah this is and i think many many people i've talked to in itech as well they said like i had no idea what stuttgart is or where it is but i knew about itech so
0: <laughs> i think i knew
1: stuttgart uh
0: before because of uh frei Otto.
1: okay that, that's yeah. how
0: i know the city and then uh, Werner uh, Werner uh of course yeah so. i yeah i had the book from Zollner, Werner zobeck about prefab house like many years ago when i was uh, interested in prefabrication and uh, in my apartment in New York, in the bedroom, there was a, a drawing, I mean a replica of Mr. Van der Rohe's drawing and that drawing was the floor plan of uh, Weissenhof Siedlung. Mm-hmm. I, do I pronounce it correctly? Um, yeah. So yeah, this Weissenhof Siedlung is actually uh, located in the north part of Stuttgart and I, like for a long time, I didn't know that building is actually in Stuttgart, but I think <laughs> just somehow I'm just a, just my dest- destiny to eventually end up here.
1: Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. It's it was your destiny.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> having that uh, drawing hanging above my my bed for like many years, dreaming about it, and without knowing it's actually in Stuttgart.
1: So you mentioned before that you you saw this. Uh uh like contribution to digital futures from from icd about self-shaping um did you or did you hope that when you come to itech that you would also do self-shaping or was this on your mind at all or i guess what was your expectation coming to itech actually
0: i was very open-minded i just know i wanted to know more about new technologies either robotics mm-hmm. or ai or material science or biomimetics and I mean all of those courses offered in that curriculum seemed very attractive to me but eventually now I became more interested in uh, AI and now I also like uh, working like part time in the AI research center in Stuttgart currently my interest is more like for example reinforcement learning for robotics and all of and also all of the recent uh, development in Generative AI. I'm really looking forward to see uh, seeing how this generative AI can change the way architects design buildings. I also remember like you, uh, when when MidJourney was first uh, released, you spent a lot of time playing with that. You had yeah, kind of, like publishing, <laughs> like uh, uploading one image every day. Uh, are you still doing that?
1: Oh uh, no, I think <laughs> um, I think like many people, so many people did that, and every one of us thought we were so like individualistic and like so special <laughs> but it's just amazing also i guess after this like mid-journey hype yeah. this is like first amazing how how do they do it that like seeing the second and the third iteration now and also how it changes visualization in in architecture and how insanely realistic those like mood board ideas look like but also like how it can now take inputs and you can generate a render from that with like a very rudimentary 3d model it's 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 amazing to see and also i guess you were mentioning ai research and i guess you yourself are doing a lot of um hardware research now with your thesis or so robotics and I, I was just reminded i think a few days ago i listened to the hard Folk podcast i don't know if you know that it's like with uh, casey newton and Uh, another guy I think one of them is like from the New York Times they always it's like about the cutting edge technologies and like they every week they go to like a different company as well and talk about the new developments and technology and AI and uh, this week they went to Google and I guess the big discrepancy is that now we have these like amazing software tools you mentioned Mid Journey, the generative AIs But then also these like large language models jet gpt all that and it's just like revolutionizing how people like work and code and then there's like the hardware development with the robots and the robots are still like bumping into the wall (laughs) it's very time intensive and labor intensive to teach the robots and to update the hardware Mm -hmm. and this uh, google research team they were like i don't know how it works in detail but they were combining the large language models with hardware so the hardware itself can learn with the large language model Mm. and they had this like robot and you could just tell them like serve me a coke Mm. and it would have a camera and it would know what is a coke like i don't know search Mm -hmm. a picture and then like image detection looking in the room oh this is a coke and then it would like make the other connection of like what is the pathway i need to take through the room and then it would drive there and grab the coke mm-hmm. and then drive back and give you the coke and i think this this might be like a super amazing breakthrough of like mm-hmm. accelerating the hardware development as well cuz yeah. hardware is hard <laughs>
0: yeah exactly like yeah i saw this article last week about this rt2 model from google yes it's, exactly it's called a uh, robotic transformer 2 uh version 2 they have been working on this topic for a long time and uh, it's trying to like uh, unify large language model with computer vision and uh, action control uh, into just one transformer model, uh, which is okay. really cool. Like it's like a, almost like a universal uh, model for for robotics. Uh, it makes the the human robot interface much more intuitive. And just uh, with a prompt and then the robot can follow some uh, order based on those natural language input which is really cool uh, it's going to develop like faster and faster after all of these technological breakthroughs either chat gpt or uh, computer vision like in, in the field of computer vision there was also there was also a new uh, model released april this year it's very recent april this year I think it's from Google. No, Meta. Meta released a computer computer vision model called uh, segmenting every segmenting anything. It's basically it's a, a computer vision model that can recognize most of the daily object, and in the pretty like high accuracy, and it's open source and. I heard a lot of PhD who have been working on this topic and suddenly their research just, just didn't <laughs> have much value after uh, Meta released this model. Yeah, I think we're living in a very exciting time and everything is like yeah very fast. There's going to be a, a wave of, of this AI development.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's kind of funny that I'm like telling you this story and you already know you've you know all the names you've read everything about it and probably know much more than i do yeah it's like as you said it's such an amazing time to like be alive and i remember the first time using chat gpt and like it it sounds so cringe and it sounds so weird but like it was i was excited to work again like Mm. how it changes the way i approach problems and like especially um when we code like how i code and you can oh, like for my i written i've written an um like super simple installer for the software that we're doing and i've never like used um like this coding language like uh powershell oh yeah powershell and y- you could just use chat gpt and like learn about powershell even though you've never like use the language and I think this is like amazing you know the concepts Mm -hmm. in programming that you want to do but the syntax is like missing from this like foreign language and it's just like you give it what you want to do what order when to do what Mm -hmm. and it just spits out code and most of the time it it, like works pretty well and it's it you just feel so I don't know I just feel so invigorated Mm -hmm. to try out new things to like Mm -hmm. ask questions about the world again. Right. to just find out and learn.
0: Yeah, exactly. I have exactly the same feeling. Like before ChatGPT, I felt like there are so many new areas I want to explore, but it's a bit intimidating just to go there yeah. without knowing anything. But now with ChatGPT as a wonderful assistant, I can I feel like more comfortable to just look at any new topic. It's also a very good tutor for some yeah. basic coding uh advices it's just amazing too now like after a few months uh intensively using chat i can't even imagine the life before that <laughs> how like, <Yeah. laughs> like how, how did we uh, do the research before ChatGPT was invented <laughs> it's only a few months i mean it's a big change in my life and like it's not like imagining uh, the life without smartphone without mobile yeah. internet um yeah really well, it's gonna change the way we live it's, and it's amazing <laughs> uh for a long time people have been worrying about ai like, taking over uh workers jobs and and especially those uh like manual workers job but the reality is actually showing opposite opposite result it seems like uh, chat gpt can first take over like some coding jobs or those more intellectual <laughs> jobs than those manual manual works i mean robots are still not smart enough for those manual works but some of those more intellectual works can actually uh, be taken over by ai that's something quite surprising to many people and because AI ChatGPT, like, speak in a way like very conv- in a very very convincing way, but it could be uh, wrong or it's n- probably it's not telling the, the fact. Uh, two weeks ago, there was a, a first meeting in United Nations discussing about uh, how human being as a, a community should, or as a, a species should deal with this new technology. I mean, it's the first time in history, uh, UN having a formal meeting discussing this topic. And there are a lot of potentials and also a lot of risks how this technology can be used by people with uh, malicious uh, intentions and it can be very dangerous. And yeah, for sure. How it can influence politics so yeah Yeah. it's it's exciting time but also uh hopefully we won't destroy ourselves yeah back to architecture (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah i know that you you played cello before does it Um, uh i mean does it contribute anything to your architecture study or career
1: that's a good question So I guess as a disclaimer, I haven't played much music ever since I started architecture. So maybe mm-hmm. <laughs> so maybe this is an indicator that the creative outlet that before maybe was music is now more architecture. Or I guess that as soon as you enter a, a creative field that in your free time or in your leisure time you might just not like either need or want to be creative all the time. Maybe if you're always generating outputs in your studies, maybe you just, sometimes you just want to be able to take something in. Um, so I would say it, it definitely like was nice to, and I'm still passionate about music and how music is like an amazing creative outlet, mm-hmm. but it definitely the transition I would say. So in at least in Bavaria, where I'm from, you have to choose between music and art um, mm. when you do your last two years in your A-level. Mm. And I chose music and I didn't choose art. And I, I imagine maybe if I chose like fine arts, that I would maybe gravitated towards architecture earlier.
0: Mm. Or I don't know.
1: I think... Hmm. yeah, That would be an interesting study if like all big, great architects had like some affiliation with like music or could play an instrument or if it like is completely random and didn't matter at all
0: Mm -hmm. but i think there are a lot of uh, scientists who uh, play instrument or influence their thoughts are influenced by music probably yeah but it's also really sounds really cool that the the german education system require this kind of art education in the in the uh in the a level is a level equals to like high school in the us
1: yeah i think the the like german term is abitur and i abitur. guess a level is kind of like a, a british thing oh. so i guess it's just like yeah high school um and like the ability to attend mm. um, a university or college i guess mm. so yeah I just high school graduation
0: so either music or art is part of the, the the exam or for the qualification of university?
1: Oh, it's it's not necessarily like an exam, mm-hmm. like it's it's in your studies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like only two hours a week. So it's, I would say it's still like a minor part, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas like math or like uh, German, you have like four to five hours a week. Mm-hmm. Um, it but yeah for sure i think it's it's very nice and it's important for young individuals to to have art or a music education also just not necessarily to like study i don't know who's the most famous painters or what is like this era of painting or this era of like classical music but to just have some Time in, in high school where you just can do something else than worry about how do I get through the next math exam. Or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like so, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. So what do you do in your
0: free time nowadays? <laughs> or do you have any free times <laughs> while working on your thesis?
1: <laughs> no, of course. Um, I guess you, if you're passionate about your studies, you always think about. And in, mm-hmm. I guess in architecture or in, in the creative arts um, especially it's always on your mind but of course so i would say my my hobbies nicely aligned with the studies as well Mm -hmm. so um i i was always a big nerd as you as well for me always the big thing was video games so video games are still like a big part of my life Mm -hmm. and i really love retro style games and retro games Mm -hmm. um but then also like uh drones is a big part of my oh yeah (laughs) <laughs> you're so, the drone pilot yeah <laughs> so i started out when i was uh doing like a like a semester job or how do you call it like semester break job at mm-hmm. daimler and suddenly i had oh. like t- too much money which sounds douchey but it's <laughs> i'm not trying to be douchey <laughs> <laughs> so i was just okay what what would interest me and i was like oh like just get a drone would be kind of cool so i started out with like a small gps stabilized dji Mm. drone and those things are like amazing like Mm. dji is a company the products that they build and the software behind it and Mm. everything is just it's just stunning Mm. um so then after a while you do this thing and you like oh okay this is how you fly the drone this is how you like do those certain shots a little bit of cinematography and then you like get interested okay Now i also want to build one myself so then i got into fpv drones which is effectively this like more manually controlled drones that you fly with the goggles they kind of like look like the vr goggles yeah and i think slowly then i started with pre-built drones where you didn't have to solder anything you just had to like pair it with the goggles and the controller and then it worked and i think now i'm on the level Kind of like every hobby, just like a rabbit hole goes down. Now I'm like mm. building my own drones, like picking the motors. Oh, I want this ESC. I want this flight controller. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's kind of like I take you as, as soon as you go deeper, you never go back.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a big rabbit hole. It's like people who yeah. started uh, trying f- photography and then oh, eventually end yeah. up in those uh, deep, deep rabbit hole of uh, cameras. And I'm sure like a drone is like a a vast world to explore. And, but it's really, sound, the FPV uh, drone sounds really interesting. Does it mean first yeah. person, first personal view?
1: FPV? Yeah, first person view. like yeah. OK,
0: so with the goggles. So it's almost like yeah. extension of our physical body because we are not able to as human being we're not able to fly but this equipment allow us to see something from a a bird's perspective so
1: i think yeah that's it's kind of amazing the first time trying it it really feels like flying and you're like shaking Mm -hmm. because you're like in the air and i'm like kind of afraid of heights as well Mm -hmm. and then like dji now even has so normally the FPV goggle is not motion tracked Mm-hmm. so not like the vr goggles but dji now has also goggles where you can control the drone with your head so when Whoa. you turn your head the drone turns as well and uh, you can probably find like amazing videos on instagram where people just like have their head and the uh, sh- drone in the same shot and you can see how the drone moves with the head as well mm-hmm. and i think like an, an interesting thought that you brought up now as well is like the the augmentation or enhancement of like kind of humans and this thought of like first with prosthetics we try to like replace a function as best as we can and like to give quality of life back to people who suffered injuries or yeah Mm kind of lost the ability of the limbs or the eyes and now kind of this question arises as well like at at what point does the is the argumentation actually better than like my physical arm like it can go like for longer stronger like better material more tailored maybe towards a specific um like need or application or work Mm -hmm. and this is something i i think about very often and i always have this like picture in my head i guess dsx is like this big or a ghost in a shell as well, like mm-hmm. the uh, big, uh, uh, sorry, mainstream <laughs> mm-hmm. um, like fantasy or like uh, science fiction that explores this concept. And I always have this picture in my head of like someone in an automobile factory having like uh, a new like bionic arm and you have like a tool changer as a hand and you can just screw in screws or like change tires. And it's kind of scary, but for me, it's more exciting to think Mm -hmm. about this potential future.
0: Yeah, I think we're all cyborgs already. If we consider our smartphones as part of our brain, like without smartphone, we don't know how to navigate in the the new city. Uh, But eventually it's gonna invade our life in a more and more deeper and fundamental way. Okay, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. Everyone's super busy now working on their business.
1: Yeah, I think it's awesome. And and thanks for having me. And also thanks for taking the time and for setting everything up.
0: Thank you for listening. If you like Drifter podcast and want to listen to more of the interviews with my colleagues, please click the subscribe button. My name is Pengfei. See you next time.